Be seated. Genesis chapter 42 this morning. Genesis chapter 42 as we're following the Genesis account through. And uh, I'm just going to acknowledge right here at the outset, I realize that I may be fighting a losing battle this morning. Some of you stayed up late for a reason last night. Some of you had too much adrenaline going to fall asleep after you stayed up late last night. Some of you might be me this morning. Hang with me here, okay? Hang with me. Hang with the Word of God this morning as we open Genesis chapter 42. In Proverbs chapter 13, Solomon said this, The way of the treacherous is their ruin. The way of the treacherous is their ruin. And in Hebrews chapter 11, as the writer of Hebrews writes, he says this. He says that, that he alludes to this truth that sin does bring a fleeting pleasure. Sin does bring a fleeting pleasure. There, there is pleasure to be had in sin. But if you take those two verses together and you couple them, what you find out is, yes, there is a fleeting pleasure in sin, but sin ultimately will bring us to our ruin. You see, after the fleeting pleasure of sin goes away, one must deal with their own hearts and the guilt that's there. And they have to deal with a conscience. Now, some people have dealt with their conscience by just totally, just totally over time, just searing that conscience over and over. And, and, and it's, it's true. I think I've met people that just don't have a conscience. You ever met people like that? But for most of us that are living and breathing... We have to wrestle with a conscience that is constantly accusing us of our guilt. On top of that, we go through life and we, we have the unfortunate happening that, that is Joseph's reality, and that is that we've been sinned against. I think every one of us has this great sense of justice whenever we've been sinned against, don't we? Like, when someone does us wrong, we are quick to point that out, right? Anybody else there with me? Like, that's wrong. You have harmed me in this. What we don't have is the sense of justice on the other side when we've harmed somebody, right? We're not as quick to, to, to realize that. And this morning in this text, we're going to get clued in by God as He unfolds this story for us how you deal with people who have sinned against you. I mean people who have sinned against you in a really hurtful and a harmful way. The kind of stuff that, that if you're not careful, you can carry around with you all of your life. In fact, keep your finger here and go with me to Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about how we respond to this kind of thing in Ephesians chapter 4 in the last two verses where he says this, let all bitterness and wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now, now stop there for a second and look up here. Honestly, did anybody have to teach you how to get angry? Did anybody teach you how to get bitter? Did anybody have to model for you how to slander somebody? Those are all things that the old man is really good at doing right? 
Those are all things that, that if we're not careful and we're not, not pursuing sanctification and we're not walking in the Spirit, however you want to put it, those are all things that you and I can default to, right? No one had to teach us how to do that. Look at verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's be honest. Being kind to people who are jerks is one of the hardest things to do. Anybody else with me on that? Being kind to people who have intentionally hurt us is really hard to do. Anybody else there with me on that? Being, being tender-hearted when people can be so cruel and hurtful is really hard to do, is it not? And then on top of that, God calls us to forgive one another as God, and, and it's not just like, hey, just pat him on the back and say, my bad, and, and I understand, and, and we're all good, we're all good, and walk away and say to yourself, I'm never talking to that person again. You ever been guilty of doing that? No, the standard for forgiveness there in Ephesians chapter 4 is, forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. Whoa. That's what we're called to. And what we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 42 as we get back there is, is that now it's been 20 years, 20 years since 10 brothers took Joseph and threw him in a pit. And then, then those brothers pulled him out of the pit with Reuben not there and they sold him to slave traders. 20 years. Now think about this. What we're going to find out when we read the text and we unpack it is, is that this has been on their conscience because there are certain things that happen that prompt their conscience. Can you imagine carrying 20 years of guilt around? And it's not just the guilt of selling your brother into slavery, it's the guilt of selling your brother into slavery and then going back to your daddy and making it look like he had been killed by a wild animal. 20 years of carrying that guilt around. Then think about this. 20 years of living, of being the one who's been wronged against. 20 years of living with that, knowing, knowing that you were, you were intentionally sinned against by somebody. And what we're going to see is that an all-wise God, who's in control of all events that happen on this earth, has now, has now set the conditions to bring about the most unlikely of reunions. Have you found that to be true in your life, that God sometimes orchestrates events to bring you across people's paths that you're like, why? Why did that just happen? I don't know that I can always answer the why that just happened, but I can answer this for you. God's not making a mistake in that. God's not making a mistake in that. And so now, God's going to use a widespread famine to accomplish His purposes in the life of Jacob, in the life of His sons. And we're going to see the beginning of this start to unfold. So let's read Genesis chapter 42 this morning. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. 
So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them, where do you come from? He said, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> your servants have never been spies. We've been, we've been duplicitous, we've been treacherous, and we, we, we've done some pretty, but we've never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and he wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from among them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give him them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder, fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We've never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. 
As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Put them in my hands and I will bring them back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for their brother is dead. He is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Wow. Now, at first blush, when we read this at text, it may seem to you that Joseph is being really harsh with his brothers. I don't think so. I don't think he's being vengeful. I don't think he's using his power and his position to toy with his brothers to exact retribution. In fact, no. A serious wrong has been committed against Joseph, has it not? A serious wrong has been committed here. And, and, and now God, in his all-wise loving providence, has brought together these long-separated brothers, and Joseph is doing something that I would submit that any person who has been severely wronged against needs to do. He needs to verify whether or not there's been change in the heart of the offender. But I want you first to see what brings these brothers, and it's the desperation of want. The desperation of want. And think about this. We know that the patriarchs, we know that Abraham, we know that Isaac, and we know that Jacob were wealthy men, and they handed this wealth down. And as, and as these men handed wealth over to their sons, that wealth only grew in their families. But money does no good when you have nothing to buy. Money does no good when you have nothing to spend it on that can keep you and your family fed. And so God at work here begins to work in, in this family, and he uses want. He uses this need for something that they cannot fulfill. And what's interesting to me is the, the way that Moses writes this. Look at verse, five, verse 1 there. When Jacob approaches his brothers, what are they doing with one another? They're looking at one another. And, and, and you say, well, what's the significance of that, PD? What's, what's going on here? And, and, and I can tell you what's happening here. The brothers know that there is grain to be found in Egypt, but the last place that these brothers want to go is to Egypt. You say, well, why is that? Because they might run into some Midianites who know them down there, and they might be confronted with the fact that they sold their brother into slavery into Egypt. And so the last place they want to go is the place that they have to go. And I would submit to you that, that even a worldwide famine is being used by God to awaken the consciences of these men. God uses material need, the need for food, to get the brothers' attention. They had no choice but to head to Egypt. On top of that, God's now going to use the words of their father to further provoke their conscience. Notice, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Jacob's not a dumb man. 
Jacob's not a dumb man. He knows that he sent his most beloved son out to see the ten brothers and that the beloved son never returned home, right? He's not going to send number two beloved son anywhere alone with the brothers. And don't think for a second that that doesn't work on the consciences of these ten brothers. Dad doesn't trust us. Dad knows something. Dad, we're the reason that dad won't send Benjamin with us. You see what want does? Want humbles a person, doesn't it? Want humbles a person. And, and here are 10 men who definitely need to be humbled. For 20 years, they thought they've gotten away with something. For 20 years, they thought they'd been able to, to keep it pulled over their father's eyes. For, 10, for 20 years, they've thought, we've gotten rid of Joseph and we've solved that problem. And for 20 years, they have lived life like they really were in control of their lives. And it took a worldwide famine for them to realize we're in control of nothing here. And that is what want will do. Want will humble a person. And so now they get to Egypt. And they come, and in verse 6, what do they do? They have to bow before Joseph. <laughs> you just thought Walt Disney World is the place where all dreams come true. This is literally Joseph's dream coming true. Ten of his brothers come before him. And they bow their faces to the ground. And it says twice in here, in verses 7 through 9, that, that, that he recognized them. It says it in verse 8, and it says it in verse 7. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Now, Joseph's now in a quandary too, isn't he? Joseph's in a tough place here. These are his brothers. They have come to him, and, and, and here's Joseph. Joseph is now like, I'm in a tough situation here. I have total control over what happens with these guys. Remember, is, is Joseph's word as good as the Pharaoh's? Yeah. No one would have questioned if he would have said, these guys are spies off with their head. Right? And so what Joseph does is, Joseph tests his brothers. Joseph tests his brothers. He's going to determine whether or not there's been a change in heart. He's going to determine whether or not what's going on back home. He needs to verify something really important in his mind. Is my brother Benjamin alive or have they done this to Benjamin too? And so he begins with a test of harsh, harsh accusation. Look at verse 9. You are spies and you've come to see the nakedness of the land. Now, question for you, does Joseph know that they're not spies? He knows they're not spies. He knows they're not here for, for some nefarious purpose. He knows that they're here because they're hungry. And they respond in verse 11, we're the sons of one man. <laughs> we're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. And I'm sure Joseph in his mind is saying this, yeah, you've never been spies, but let me give you the laundry list of what you have been. Okay? And in their speaking with them, as he again accuses them in verse 12, verse 13, some important information comes out that Joseph is looking for. Think about this. 
many of you, probably every one of us in this room, has experienced hurt at the hands of somebody else. Is that fair to say? Sometimes the deepest hurts that we experience are from the ones who love us the most or said that they loved us the most, right? And sometimes the deepest hurts that come are directly from our own family, as is Joseph's case right here. And so here is this man who, who for 20 years has been having to deal with this hurt. And I don't care what anyone says, if you have been hurt deeply, you don't ever forget the hurt. Am I right? Now, can you forgive the hurt? Are you commanded to forgive the hurt? Yeah, but do you forget the hurt? And so Joseph now has to figure out how he conducts himself with these brothers. And so he puts a little test in front of them. He accuses them of being spies. And that first test reveals some important information that he gets in verse 13. We, your servants... Do you, do you catch the, just the, the irony that's just dripping in this passage here? We, your servants, are 12 brothers. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting to Joseph. The sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father. So what does he find out? He finds out that both his dad and his brother Benjamin are still alive. That's good news to Joseph. That's good news. Because he knows, he knows, think about this, in Joseph's mind, this whole time that he's been separated from his father, and remember, we saw this, he was a daddy's boy, was he not? This whole time, he knows, this has got to be killing my father, and it probably has killed my father. He finds out that his dad's alive, and that his brother is alive. And then they throw in this interesting detail, and, and, and by the way, one of our brothers is dead. Now, I have a hard time keeping my mouth shut. I know that. It would be at this point that I would be like, ha, 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 not so through. Anybody else with me on that? Anybody else with me on that? That's where you're wrong. No. He just bites his tongue. And at verse 14, he comes back with this. It's as I said to you, you guys are spies. You guys are spies. And you say, this is the most unloving thing that a person can do. And I would submit to you, no, this is what wisdom does. Wisdom determines whether or not a person's truly changed or not. And so here are these brothers who are in desperate need, and they've now revealed important details. And Joseph is going to up the ante with another test. You see what it is? Verse 16, and he, and he, verse 15, he says, by, by this you will be tested. He doesn't even, he's like, I'm going to test you to see whether or not you really are who you say you are. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your younger brother comes to me. What's he doing? He's verifying whether or not what they've said is true or not. Words are pretty empty, are they not, when you've been hurt by somebody? I mean, look, look, look up here. Let's be real. When, when you've been hurt by somebody, their words mean nothing to you. What do you need from them? Show me that you're changed. Show me that you're changed. Demonstrate that you're changed. And so, this is a legitimate test that he offers. 
Verse 16, send one of you and let him bring your brother while, you, while the rest of you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. He puts them in solitary for three days. Can you imagine what the conversations were like there? Can you imagine what's going on there as they're talking with one another? And so then, after three days of their consciences working overtime in their hearts, and some of you in this room know what that's like because right now your conscience is prompting you about something that you know you need to come clean with God and somebody else. You know what that's like to have your conscience being prompted. And for three full days, they have nothing but to think about how did we get here to this place right now, today? I'll never forget the summer that we got to go down and see Beth in Haiti. I don't think, Beth, I've ever told you this story. But on the way out of Haiti, and, and I don't know if you know anything about Haiti, but Haiti's not like going to any other Caribbean country, you know, where it's just really nice and you just go have a peaceful time on the beach. The people there are in abject poverty, and they tend to be kind of angry people. Am I right, Beth? Yeah. She's like, hmm. It's interesting, though, whenever they get transformed by Christ, they become some of the most loving, generous, open people that, that you absolutely, you just can't wait to get to heaven and spend time with. But I will never forget leaving the country of Haiti and, and, and being warned, going through customs, just keep it very businesslike and just go through. And there's this guy with an assault rifle and he stops me in line. I'm like, oh, great. He's holding this assault rifle like this. And he says to me, now, it was 2009, if I remember. So you know who was in the White House then, right? Initials B.O., Okay. The guy's holding, take what you will with that. He's holding this assault rifle and he says to me, I hate your president. I really wanted to say, I don't like him either. <laughs> and he said, I hate your president and I hate your country. And I'm like, oh no, <sighs> this is the end. This is how it's going to all be written about me. American hero dies in Haiti. <laughs> and I had all these things flashing in front of me. And he takes a look at my paperwork and he says, have a nice day. And I'm like, thank you. <laughs> I just know the fear that crept in my heart in that short little minute. Can you imagine three days now in a foreign country? Your spies? Your spies here? You're, 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 you're up to no good. And then, then this, this condition that he puts on them, one of you is going to go back and the rest of you are going to stay and they know what their dad is like, right? I mean, you, how many of you know what your dad is like? Like, dad is going to hate that. Dad is not going to go for that. We're going to all die here. And so they're like trying to figure out which one of us is the best one to go home and explain this to dad, which is the one who can convince dad to bring Benjamin back. And they're going through all those gyrations. And then on the third day, Joseph comes to them in verse 18. He says, do this and you will live for I fear God. And he changes the terms. 
If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go and carry grain for the family of their households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, you shall not die. And notice the brothers' consciences as Moses writes this under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, they're talking in their native tongue. They don't think Joseph can understand a word they're saying. And this is what they say. We're guilty. This, this is all about Joseph. This is what they're saying. This, this, this is all, 20 years later and we are now paying the piper. This all has to do with Joseph. When he begged us and we didn't listen. And this is why I distress. And then Reuben piles on and he says, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? That's the typical older brother, right? If you'd have just listened to me, But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And we get a good indication of Joseph's heart in verse 24, don't we? Joseph hears the whole thing, and I know what my flesh would do with that. I would have to turn around and laugh and go, <laughs> I got him where I want him. I got him exactly where I want him. Joseph has an Ephesians 4.32 heart, though, doesn't he? He doesn't have a bitter heart. He doesn't have an angry heart. He has a kind heart. He has a, he has a tender-hearted heart, and he has a forgiving heart. And as he sees them wrestle with this, he turns away and weeps. And it's interesting that he takes Simeon. You say, okay, he could have taken any one of those ten. Why did he? Well, think about birth order. There's Reuben who wasn't there when Joseph was sold, who's the next oldest brother who was there and who was in charge? Take a guess. It was Simeon. And don't think for a second that the boys on the way home are like, why do you suppose he took Simeon? He should have taken Reuben, don't you think? And as they're talking this through, Reuben's reminding them, well, if this is God's judgment, remember, I'm not the one who sold him. You guys listen to Simeon. It's only fitting, right? It's only fitting. And so now Joseph has tested them with harsh words. He's tested them with, with a trip to solitary. He's tested them by, by seeing if they're willing to leave one behind for the sake of going to get the brothers, how much they're willing to sacrifice for Benjamin and bring him back, how much they're willing to talk to their dad about this, knowing full well that he knows that their dad's not going to go for this plan, but he's just testing them and testing them and testing them. And then he gives them one final really big test that I would submit to you as an example to all of us. He tests them with grace. He tests them with grace. So, as he sends them off, notice what he does. Verse 25, he gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. Can you imagine what the lieutenants under Joseph are thinking? This guy has done lost his mind. The stress of this famine has got, finally gotten to Joseph. Give them all the grain that they want, and by the way, put all their money back in their bags. It's grace, isn't it? On top of that, he gives them, he gives them the food that they need, the grain. He gives them their money, and he gives them food for the way home. That's grace. 
Think about it. When his brothers sent him away, they left him totally stripped naked. And he sends them back to his homeland with more than they had when they showed up. That's what grace does. That's what a changed heart does, person. They have wronged him. And he returns their money, and, and, and he gives them grace. This, this is what grace is. It's unmerited favor. They didn't earn this. They earned the right to stay in jail down there is what they earned. And keep in mind, in case you've forgotten, this is his very first contact with the brothers after they sold him into slavery. You say... There's no way I could do that. And you're right. There's no way in your own strength you can do that. But, but if you are truly in Christ, you can show grace. And the grace that he extends further prompts their consciences. Look at verse 28. So they're on their way back and they stop for the night. And one of the brothers opens up his sack because he's going to be the one who's going to feed the animals, right? Right? And he opens up his sack and he's like, oh my word, they made a big mistake down there. They put my money back in the sack. And notice how they respond. At this, their hearts failed them and they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this, that, and what does your Bible say? For the first time, for the first time, the brothers are starting to connect the dots. And who are they acknowledging in this? It isn't just what we've done to Joseph. It's what we've done to God here. It's what we've done to God. And, and, and now, now God's going to bring judgment on us. When you get down to verse 35, when every one of them realizes that they came home with all their money, can you imagine how that fear gets multiplied? It's like, it's, like, it's like going to Kroger and, and you fill your grocery cart up, right? Because we live in a famine-filled land, right? And you fill up the grocery cart and, and, and they hand you, rather than you paying on your credit card, you get this credit thing on you. Oh, by the way, we gave you $500. Thank you for shopping at Kroger. You're like, I'm going to be in big trouble over that. I'm going to jail for that, Right? And now, for Jacob, as we leave the text this morning, things have gone from bad to worse, haven't they? And notice Jacob's words. Notice Jacob's words. After they recount the whole story, verse 36, Jacob's words just cut at the heart of these brothers. Jacob knows more than what they think he knows. Do you see it there? You have bereaved me of my children. I find it fitting that the guy who prayed that, you know, we get the word and all this stuff. <sighs> hey, hey, Aaron, next week you guys are off the front row. Paul, right here. Wow. 
I don't think so. Yeah. You catch it here? Verse 36. You've bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. He equates those two together. In other words, what you guys have done here is you have taken both of these sons away from me. Joseph, Joseph his, you guys are responsible for Joseph being gone. At the very least, you didn't protect Joseph whenever he came out to you. And then Reuben makes this show that only an older brother would do. It, it, you know, we don't know if it's true or not. Kill my two sons if I don't bring them back to you. Right? But understand this. As we leave this chapter, hearts are being changed. The, the need, the need of want has driven these guys to, to, and they're humbled now. And they're humbled before a guy that they don't even realize that God told them they would be humbled before. And I think about this as we wrap up this morning. As I think about this, the fact that God would orchestrate a, 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 a large famine over a huge part of the earth to reconcile one family tells me this, that God does care about you and my family. He does. You say, how do you know this is about Jacob and his family? Because that's the way the Word of God presents it. God orchestrates all these events in a way that only God could do to bring this family back into contact with one another. But what strikes me even more is the way that God worked through Joseph to show grace in the middle of this. But here's the thing. Maybe you're here this morning, and I alluded to it earlier. Maybe you're here wrestling with some unconfessed sin. Can I, can I say this to you? The answer is always, 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 always found in grace. The way to deal with unconfessed sin is not to push it deeper. The way to, to deal with unconfessed sin is to try to find something to help you to forget it just a little bit more. The way to deal with unconfessed sin is always to deal with it, meet it head on with grace, God's grace. You see, that's what God did with all of our sin. He met it head on on the cross in the person of Jesus, did he not? That's the ultimate grace. Maybe you're here this morning and you're feeling the pangs of guilt. You're feeling that pressure, the weight of conscience on you. Stop running away from the cross and run to the cross. Stop running away from grace and run to grace. In the case of Joseph's brothers, they weren't running to grace. They were literally getting dragged to grace. Do you see it? They're literally getting dragged to grace. And here's what I know. When God wants you to encounter grace, he will, he will if he has to, he will drag you right to it. John Newton got it right when he wrote Amazing Grace. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." When we sing those words, do you ever think about those words? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." That doesn't seem like a really thing that grace would do, right? 
But it's true in the lives of these brothers. When we leave them at the end of chapter 42, they are shaken in their boots or their sandals or whatever it is they were wearing. But before we leave this text, maybe you're the person in this room that's wrestling with past hurts. Or maybe you've got some fresh hurts right now that are, that are just recent in your life. And, and you're thinking to yourself, I could never forgive so-and-so for that. Or I will never forgive so-and-so for that. Or, or they're going to have to really do something amazing for me to forgive them. And before you put that standard on them, just ask yourself, are you glad that God didn't put that standard on you? Are you glad God didn't put that standard on you? Like that Scarberry guy's going to have to do something amazing for me to give him any grace. If that was true for any of us in this room, guess what? We are all hopeless because none of us are capable of doing anything amazing. Let me ask you a question, those of you who are wrestling with that hurt. Who's the one who's going to resolve that hurt? Is it going to be you? Can you resolve the hurt? Can you? No, you can't. Who's the one who's going to resolve that hurt? Almighty God is. But you can control your actions as the one who's been hurt. And we learn a great lesson from Joseph, don't we? What does he do? He does exactly what Jesus taught us to do in the Gospels when he said this, if you've been sinned against, what do you do? You return the evil with what? You return it with good. You return it with kindness. And, and, you, and, and he put it this way, you heap coals of fire on their head. I love that. You see, people who are already feeling guilt people who are already feeling guilt, they already know what it's like to have a little bit of hot coals on their head. And when you respond to their goodness with grace, all it does is it just kind of turns up the heat a little bit more. And hopefully God uses that heat to bring them to a point of forgiveness, right? Maybe you've wrestled with bitterness. Maybe you've wrestled with slandering the person who's hurt you. Maybe you've wrestled with all those responses that we saw. In fact, let's just go look at those responses again. Let your eyes look at Ephesians chapter 4 before we leave here this morning. Talking to the one who's been hurt here this morning. Probably everybody in this room. Maybe you've dealt with that hurt with bitterness. Maybe you are just seething white hot with anger and wrath right now. Maybe you just complain about it all the time. Maybe, maybe you don't get invited to family reunions anymore because no one wants to be around you because all you do is talk about how the one aunt hurt your feelings 28 years ago. The gracious thing to do is the verse 32 thing to do, isn't it? Church, is that not the gracious thing to do? I can tell you this. You will never go wrong when you're extending grace. It's what God does. Does God ever do anything wrong? You will never be in the wrong by extending grace. Now, sometimes you'll find that your grace is not returned back to you. I'm going to be honest with you. Just because you choose to give grace to people who have hurt you does not mean that their hearts are going to melt and all of a sudden they're going to be like, oh, I love you so much, I was so wrong. 
But I can tell you this, when you stand before God and give an account, you will not regret showing grace. I guarantee you, you will feel some regret for being bitter, though. You will regret having wrath and anger. You will regret slandering and doing it with malice. You will regret all of those things. You will never regret living in Ephesians 4.32 life. If God's laying it on your heart this morning that there's somebody you need to go make things right with, can I just urge you, the gracious thing to do is to do it quickly and to do it now before, before you, you push that under the surface. If God's working in your heart and you're dealing with some unconfessed sin, may I urge you, run to the cross where you will find grace. Do it sooner rather than later. Father, we thank you for your word. I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be Joseph and to be in that situation. And I know how my wicked heart would want to respond to that. Lord, I pray that you would make us to be people who are tender-hearted, who show kindness, and who are forgiving one another. I pray by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.